0: You're listening to WP Radio, an OIAA podcast, and I'm your host, Terry Doherty. Each episode, I have in-depth interviews with industry experts and get to know them better. On today's episode, we listen in on a TIA event that happened on May 16th in Belleville. Randy Drysdale of Farm Mutual Re gives an in-depth lecture on barn fires and structural concerns. This episode is completely educational and Randy provides a ton of insight on what's going on. Please enjoy. Don't forget guys, we've got the OIAA golf tournament going on on June 8th at Cardinal Golf & Country Club. Please go to the website, register, and I hope to see you there.
1: I'm Randy Dreisel. I'm head of loss control for Farm Mutual Re, which is the reinsurer for the 50 Farm Mutual Reinsurance companies in Canada. I'm the head of loss control there. We have a team that goes out and looks at large agricultural structures, We are uh, focusing right now on swine and potato barns because of the number of fires that we've had. The last time I was down and spoke to this group was right when all of the barn fires were occurring and there was all kinds of things going on in the press and they were talking about how bad things were. And the exact same thing is happening right now, but have any of you heard of anything? Not many, not much news in barn fires right now, is there? And yet, this has been the worst start of our year in quite some time. So we've got barn fires that are occurring on a regular basis. The public is not actually, or the, the press is not actually doing much reporting on them anymore. And yet, they're burning at the same rate. And there's a big concern with OMAFRA, which is the... Uh, the government body for farming. And so they've actually started up a committee that was started in 2007, they've re-upped it. And now we're looking back at barns to try and figure out why there are so many losses with barns. So what I'm gonna talk about today is the changing nature of farming and uh, the benefits of creating resilient structures. So farm buildings are changing and they're gonna change a lot more in the next couple of years. The 2020 building code is coming out. And right now, in the existing building code, there's a limit on the size of buildings that can be built to 5,000 square meters or 50,000 square feet. Most municipalities are no longer abiding by that, so they're letting larger barns be built. Right now, there's a uh, a barn being built in the uh, Moncton area down outside of London. It's 250,000 square feet for barn, or for swine, or sorry, actually, that's a dairy barn. And there's another swine barn being built that's going to be somewhere around 200,000 square feet, which is a huge barn. And to solve the problem, what the code writers have decided to do is to take away the restriction on the size of all barns in the future. They're already being built. They're already superseding the rules that are in the code. So they said, OK, if that's the way it's going to go, we're just going to not have a rule. So it's going to be wide open. Yep.
2: How are they getting built with permits if they're not to
1: code? Uh, The building code, the National Farm Building Code is what is used in Ontario, is a code that was written in 1995. And so individual municipalities can supersede the building code because they're giving more authority through the municipal building inspectors than they are through the people who create the codes. So that's how they get away with it. As long as that building inspector says, yep, you can build it and we're good with it, they they let them go ahead and do it. From our standpoint, from a reinsurance standpoint, and from an agricultural standpoint, it's gonna change the landscape considerably. So that is why they're changing. They want to be bigger. Farms are now starting to become huge operations. Uh, Lots of farms are, uh, they're just buying the land. The land around me was just bought by a dairy farmer who wants to increase his herd. Uh, So he bought 300 acres and paid almost $4 million for 300 acres, and it's only to spread manure. Generally, I charge $20 if your phone rings while I'm speaking, but since I know him, I'm going to let him go. So anybody else, uh, it is a $20 fee if it rings. So 2017 and 2018 losses, everybody puts their phones away pretty quick when I do that one. Actually, I hope mine's off, because that would suck. (laughs) I don't have the 20 bucks right now. Uh, 2017-2018 losses are increasing. Uh, Last year was our worst year ever for for barn fires. Uh, This year has started out with a bang as well, and it's not a good thing. So I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about fire prevention, and I'm going to talk about building design, and I'm going to talk about technology and how the Internet of Things is going to change farming beyond belief. So Randy, those two big barns that are being built, are they insurance plans? No, they're just building them. Yeah. Uh they they're not they're not really barns anymore either. Uh the one has a boardroom that is probably bigger than our office which is which is huge and so that's their boardroom but they also are thinking that they're going to uh, let public interest groups use it and uh so you you've got these structures that are going up and and it's quite interesting to see what they're all going to be how they're going to last and they, how they're going to survive but so, from uh, 2009 to 2016, according to the Office of the Fire Marshal, the number of barn fires was or has been dropping. So, in 2009, we had roughly about 185 barn fires in a year, and as of 2016, it was 145. But what's happened is that the price, the cost to replace those barns, on average. Now, you have got to remember that that these barns are how the OFM categorizes the barns. So, it could be a barn could be something as small as two horses all the way up to four or 500 cows uh, being milked in there. So, the average price of a loss of a barn replacement in 2009 was about 135000 And as of 2016, it was up about 275000 And again, those are small barns. Uh, we don't deal with small barns, those are, those are just interesting claims. We're dealing with the ones that get upwards of 9 to $10 million. Now, the causes of loss as set out by the OFM. They have arson, children playing, uh, design construction failure, mechanical failure, misuse of ignition sources, other, and they have other unintentional, which, um, so th- I guess if they mean this one's unintentional the other was intentional, so I'm not 100% sure what that means. We have undetermined at 47% and unknown or not reported and vandalism. So each one of those, the mechanical failure and then the electrical failure are the bigger categories and the undetermined. When we get into the actual ignition sources, it comes down to appliances, electrical equipment, cooking equipment, which is quite common, uh, exposure, which is uh, moisture getting in and causing fires, heating equipment, lighting, electrical, miscellaneous, open flames, and with the other big one being undetermined again and the undetermined are killing us. We need to find a way to stop barn fires, and if they're always marked down as undetermined, it creates a problem for us to try and prevent them. So the top municipalities for barn fires were Kawartha Lakes with 16. So again, 2015, 2016. Uh, Perth East had 14, Norwich Township had 11, Chatham-Kent had nine, Haldeman County had nine, and West Lincoln had nine and that's just in that short period of time. And according to OMAFRA, the most common ignition sources for fires where they actually could determine a loss. It was hot ashes, embers, or a spark at 15. Other electrical at 15. Other electrical distribution, so the electrical panels, were at 14. Chemical reaction, which is spontaneous combustion, is 13. Uh, wiring is 11. Exposure uh, where the source structure was detached. So if, the, if there was a fire somewhere else and it caused another fire, that's how they're, they're causing that. A rekindle was 11, other mechanical was 10, and vehicle was 10 as well. The, as I said, the 2020 building codes are going to change things dramatically. Uh, for you guys, unfortunately, you live beyond Ajax in the eastern part of the province and you're going to have a challenge now as farmers and specifically as adjusters uh, the building code is going to require you to build all future barns to category one her earthquake ratings. Holy is right. You're not going to see many barns built up here. You're going to see them build in southern Ontario in the west now. A category one earthquake ca- classification changes things significantly It then requires earthquake straps. It requires cross-bracing in the corners. It requires more bracing in the attic. It is going to change things dramatically. There is a fault that runs under the Pickering nuclear reactor out to the uh, middle of the lake. I didn't build it, so I'm I'm good. Uh, It is a known fault, and it hasn't been active, but is starting to be active. Uh, There was just an earthquake in Amherstburg Ontario, which is in the deep south, right down, right across the lake from another nuclear reactor, which that one's bad for me because the kill zone, actually, the, the way the wind blows, will come towards where I live. If you live up here, oh yeah, you guys are on the west side or east side too. You're screwed. So you just, <laughs> just like me. Uh, there's nothing you can do. So, so earthquake resilience is going to be huge. It's going to be a challenge to get farmers to. Uh, accept that they're going to have to build to earthquake standards. There's enough other government regulation going on right now with uh, with the poultry industry, with the swine industry, and now we're going to add in, according to the building code, that they have to build to an earthquake standard. The other thing that changes everything is animal rights. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and say that animal rights are good or bad. That's, that's neither here nor there. What I'm going to tell you is, When we have people that make changes to deal with animal rights, it increases the cost to rebuild a structure. There's no doubt about it. With dairy barns right now, there's not much change for them. But if you talk to the poultry people, or if you talk to the swine industry, it's huge changes as a result of the need to change animal rights. If you're going from a battery cage system to the new uh, cages, you cannot put the same number of birds back into the structure that was there. If you're putting in swine, if you're building a swine barn right now, you can't do uh, the sow crates, so you have to have open housing. And so you're going to have to have a bigger building. I don't believe a lot of farmers have actually come to grips with the fact that what they're insured for right now, their rebuilding cost is not going to be anywhere near enough to replace that structure to what they're producing right now in the future and into the future. So that's going to be a problem. When we move to larger structures, those larger structures create problems with setback rules. You've got problems with uh, the unique construction. A lot of them are going to wide span buildings where you've got uh, open areas. So sometimes it's steel trusses, sometimes they're getting into uh, areas where you're doing double trusses. So if you go in and you want to span say 120 feet and a 400 foot long building, you're going to put a double truss in that building. That double truss is going to cost you a lot more money to build that structure than what you had originally had thought of. They don't want buildings, they don't want the farm buildings to go in at 16 inch centers, so they actually put them roughly at two foot centers, uh, but now the double trusses are going to be, they're going to be an issue for a lot of farmers. From our standpoint, we are going to have concentration of risk. Uh, When we have those large risks, we have the problem of all of the equipment that's inside the barn. We have the problem of all the animals that are in there. And then we have the business interruption as well. So the farms of the past where you had the smaller ones, they're, they're still going to exist, but they're not going exist, to exist on the scale that they were in the past. And when we go to our reinsurers, we have to explain to them, first of all, that we know what farming is, that we know what we're doing, then we have to be able to say, okay, why are these barns getting so big? Why is this happening? And what protections do we have in place to deal with that? And I'm going to talk a little bit more later about that. When you look at the way buildings are being constructed right now, we need to start thinking about resilient design. uh, Or the term is called building back better. Uh, Everybody in here, everybody lives in a house, right? Nobody lives in a mobile home or anything. If If your house is built... It's built to a standard. And that standard is the minimum standard. It's what gives you the minimum required safety features in your home and the deflection. So in your house, if you have a new house that's been built recently and you're walking around like I am right now, you'll sometimes see that the deflection in those floors is a lot greater than it was in the past. Because now they've allowed for a certain amount of deflection. So when you walk across a 2x8, that floor is actually allowed to deflect a quarter of an inch. In an old house, the way they were built, you could park a bus in there and not have any deflection. But that minimum standard is what creates problems. So we're trying to think of ways to say we're going to build back better. Building back better creates problems for adjusters because people think that that's what the insurance policy says that they should have. And that's not necessarily the case. In 2017 and 2018, I'm going to just talk about our losses. Uh, our biggest. Uh, it was a bad year for for potato barns last year. We lost three potato barn structures. Uh, one in, or two in Ontario. One in in PEI. The one in PEI was during a blizzard. Uh, it started at one o'clock in the morning. Uh, it happened on the fourth, which. Uh, I was talking to some people before. The fourth is an interesting date. Uh, the fourth is when more people die. It's statistically one of the days of the month that all kinds of things happen, and and it's a it's a weird weird anomaly. But uh, so there was a there was a blizzard. The fire started at one o'clock in the morning. Fire trucks couldn't get to the scene. They it, it basically burnt to the ground. It was a uh, an unused uh, barn at the time, and it was 4.2 million dollars for that structure. Another one burnt in Ontario, and it was roughly about two and a half million dollars. Again, it was just one of those ones that started, uh, that one started at two o'clock in the morning. The third one is a loss that is our highest to date, and it cost us 9.25 million. That 9.25 million is only our portion of the loss. We only had the building, the produce, and the equipment. The trucks were insured by another company that starts with N in and kind of rhymes with tack. Um, <laughs> luckily, uh, so all of the all of the vehicles in that barn were insured with another insurer, and there was no business interruption. Uh, the structure that has replaced it is a t- tilt-up concrete panel structure that is probably one of the best barns I have ever seen. It is being built to standards that are not typical of farms. The $9.2 million that we paid is $6 million less than what he's paying to put back the barn right now. So he is spending somewhere around $15 million. He has brought in uh, equipment from Italy uh, there's a potato processing company over there that has designed, decided that if they can build Ferraris and other things, they can also build potato processing equipment and so this potato processing equipment can actually go through and it can pick out right down to a centimeter a spot on a potato and it will select it and take it off to different sides so when the machines are running in there it's constantly moving and it's bagging and it's all done with robots and it is an incredible thing to see. Again, all of those losses were determined to be undetermined. All of them started at either 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. And undetermined is our nemesis. I spoke about that earlier. We need to figure out what undetermined is. I've come up with a new word that I think we should start using because it is more accurate if you're thinking grammatically. So, any of you who are now going to call fires undetermined, I would like you to call them nebulous. It's going to be something that everybody's going to go, What the hell is that? And then we can say, OK, we started this. So, nebulous. Nebulous means indistinct or vague. And that's what they are indistinct and vague. So, Randy, ones that Farm inspected them or not? On all of those, they had been inspected, actually but all of them were inspected two years prior. None of them were inspected at the time. So we do, uh, the the team that I have goes out and does large barn inspections. And so we would have gone out and seen, and we actually had seen all of these. Uh, So all of them did have recommendations. I can't verify if they had been repaired. And uh, the one actually, uh, and I I was going to show you a video of the loss. The one we believe started with a tow motor. And it was in a Toyota tow motor, uh, electrically charged, we believe. And and it's one of those things we can't always verify. But we think it started with the charging cords. And there was a fraying of the charging cords. And that's where the, the, the concentration of fire was. So if it was that, then it created a problem. But because of the complete destruction of the structure, uh, It couldn't, we just couldn't say for sure whether it was. And actually of that $9.2 million loss, that was only a small portion of that potato facility. The entire structure, which is all one risk, one risk meaning for us it's within 80 feet of each other, was $32 million. We were very lucky on that one because the wind was coming from the southwest that night, and it was the most northerly building that burned. And it only burnt up his processing facility, and it burnt up Uh, One storage barn. This farmer has the capability of storing 50 million pounds of potatoes. And uh, it was the most interesting fire I've been to in a while. And it was also one of the best smelling fires I've ever been to in a long time. I actually called my wife on the way home and said, I don't care what we're having tonight, but it's going to be baked potatoes. Because I had the idea in my head. Does anybody in here think climate change is happening or not happening? (laughs) It's an interesting question because some people don't believe in it and some people do. But I can almost guarantee that everybody in here thinks something weird's going on because of the amount of wind, the amount of stuff that's happening. But the interesting thing is Canada's building and public infrastructure systems are designed based on historic data assuming a stationary climate and we're not designed to accommodate certain extreme weather events being attributed to climate change so we build things to what we knew we don't build things to what could be and that's a problem if we know that winds are going to be at a different or a different wind speed than they are right now and i can give you an example of what the change in wind speed is. I've been tracking wind speed at the house I bought. So I live in Burford, which is between Brantford and Woodstock. When I moved in, because I'm kind of a geek, I started tracking the wind speed at the house because I noticed it was a little bit higher than when I lived in town. So over the the five years that I've lived there, the wind speed has actually increased on average by 12 kilometers over that time frame. So there's, there's just something going on that that constant background wind is always there and it is now 12 kilometers higher. On the day of the uh, ice storm, I had 200 foot spruce trees come right out of the ground. And luckily they came out of the ground that week because then a couple weeks later we had the big windstorm and I'd already wiped out. You know, nature did its little pruning thing and I was good, but it, uh, it creates problems because of the, the wind speeds and sustained wind speeds. On the, uh, on the Star Wars storm of May 4th, the, uh, in our area, the sustained wind speed was 110 kilometers an hour. And that's sustained with gusts that were going upwards of 150. So climate change is happening, and we need to be able to say we're going to change with it. Uh, as society and our world evolves, the need for resilient buildings will move to the forefront of people's thoughts and concerns. We need to be able to create structures that are resilient to the atmosphere that we're living in, to the climate that we're living in. I'm actually part of a National Research Council committee that's looking at being able to create resilient, designed communities. And when you look at a resiliently designed community, it's how the roads are put down, it's how the infrastructure works. It's talking about whether there's anything above ground from electrical or or, uh, services. And it's it's quite interesting to see the, the, the depth of the skills that are on that committee looking at this because everyone has identified we need to deal with this. Yep. The, the, the challenge for the people who write the codes when they're doing that is they have to look at what the cost is going to be to rebuild so you could build the most wind resistant structure imaginable it's called a silo and it's full of concrete and and but you wouldn't live in it but there are there are restraints put on on people's ability to to, to be resilient by the very nature of how much money we do and don't have. And that's going to be the challenge, is how do we find more innovative ways to build these structures? By the way, that new potato barn that went back up, that farmer built a resilient, in what I believe is a resilient design, because he put in hurricane straps. He spent an additional $7,000 of a $9.2 million, well, it's actually a $15.2 million loss. He spent an additional $7,000 to put hurricane straps in, which is this much. right? It is nothing in the cost of that barn. And he also based on some advice we gave him, he created a bunker in the middle of his building that is about the size of this area in here. It is almost two foot thick concrete walls with fire doors, a concrete ceiling, and all of his moving equipment, his tow motors, his hand carts, anything that plugs in goes in there at night and the fire doors come down and it's got fire dampers and everything. So if there is a fire in that building now, it is going to be contained to that vault in the middle of that structure. And that is amazing. He took that upon himself. He also put in fire doors everywhere he possibly could. And we're using him right now as a model for how barns should be built. But he also gets poo-pooed because people say, oh, don't do that, you know what? I'm insured, I don't care. So when you look at resilient design, it's really just using different structures, different ways of building to say, okay, if wildfire came to Ontario, does anybody think wildfire is a concern in Ontario? It's huge. When you get a little bit north of here, it's huge. We don't have the concentration of of risks because we don't have the large towns, but you have all of those multi-million dollar cottages that are just gonna burn up like matchsticks. So we need to be aware of that. But we also need to be aware of flooding Uh, People are building their houses on land that, in the past, people, you just said, okay, that guy's stupid. You know, why are you building on a floodplain? Uh, But people want to do that now, right? Hey, there's a river. I can build there. And then somebody's going to pay for it when my building floods. You also have to locate critical systems within the buildings to withstand flooding. In high flood areas, one of the things that they're doing right now is they are no longer putting furnaces in basements. They're not putting the electrical panels in the basements. So if you want to create a swimming pool over top of your house, which is what basements are, then let's move the stuff out of those basements to make it better so that you have a more resilient structure. Same thing can happen in a barn. Same thing can happen in a commercial building. So if we look at the leading causes of identifiable barn fires, it's mechanical, misuse of of ignition source, and design construction. And if we try to limit the damage that's happening in buildings, if we can focus on those three items, it can make a big difference to the structures themselves. So with electrical, we've identified some concerns uh, as part of that OMAFRA committee that that I'm We've identified that confinement barns have been misclassified in the building code or in the National Farm Building Code and the electrical code, as being the same as any other barn. But in a confinement barn, you have a lot more corrosive gases. The challenge is that to change the electrical code is very difficult. There's we Farm Mutual got a change created in 2006. But we actually kind of did it in a sneaky way, and it worked. And I don't think I could do that again, because I'd probably end up in jail. But um, if you want to change the code, you've got to go slowly through the process. So what we're doing is we're writing right now to the head of the ESA saying, here's the concern we have. Then we've got to show documentation. Then we've got to go through and do all this other work. But we've got uh, a couple of big supporters on the Electrical Safety Authority who are agreeing with us that barns should be classified as corrosive atmospheres now. Uh, even a potato barn. The reason we believe the potato barns are burning is the dust. The dust is actually corrosive when it gets mixed with water. It releases the acids in the soil and that's what breaks down the electrical equipment. Just think about that. (laughs) There, (laughs) There is a solution and it's called NEMA 4X wiring and when you're building a new structure A new barn, if you put in NEMA 4X wiring right when it's built, it only adds about 1% to the total cost of the structure, which, again, is not very much to make sure it's safe. The problem is the NEMA 4X components are not easily found. If you're an electrician, you can order them. But if how many people in here, if you have an electrical problem, how many people fix their own electrical? Just put your hands up and be honest. Do you go to Canadian Tire and buy the electrical? Or do you go buy the good stuff at an at a electrical supply company? If you're buying the good stuff, that's great. You might get six months more compared to the one that's 89 cents. If you're going to go buy electrical equipment and you're going to put in a barn or anything, you'd buy a NEMA 4X rated component. The NEMA 4X rated receptacles are about $15 per receptacle. You will never replace that receptacle. That's the problem. So you can spend, pardon? You don't think the skid steer is going to break them? Oh, yes, OK. So you will, ne- yes. <laughs> Stupidity, I can't stop. But corrosiveness, I can stop. <laughs> but a skid steer or somebody taking and, and yanking on, you you are going to break them, yes. So I actually, thank you for correcting me on that. They can be broken by other things other than corrosion. But uh, it's not a huge cost, but again, it's it's. As we change society, as we start to think, okay, we need to have better quality. If I think about the fact that in my house, what I did was, when I bought it, somebody had gone through and they'd gone to Canadian Tire and they'd replaced all the receptacles with the 89 cent receptacles. I took every single one of them out and threw them in the garbage. I went to an electrical supply company and I bought industrial rated receptacles. Because I'm sleeping there, my wife's sleeping there, and so are my kids. And I'm not going to risk it over an 89-cent receptacle. So the interesting thing about the Electrical Safety Authority is there's 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 the Electrical uh, Safety Code, which is 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 going to be changed again. 2020 is going to be a huge year for codes. Uh, The interesting thing about the Electrical Safety Code is it does not permit the installation of non-armored cables behind walls, floors or ceilings panels unless installed in conduit. Concealed cables that are not mechanically produced are susceptible to rodent damage and cannot be inspected for condition. So in a barn you cannot have concealed wiring. In a barn the uh, Ontario Electrical Safety Code considers it to be right now a corrosive environment, but It's something that that we like to term the weasel clause. In the Ontario Electrical Code, it does say that you can consider that structure to be non-corrosive if there's adequate venting. And nowhere in that code does it tell you what adequate venting means. So the weasel clause comes out and the guy says, oh, you got a fan. That's good enough. And off they go. So as long as you allow those clauses to exist, there's going to be a problem. And I didn't call it that originally, but I think it's a great term. That actually came from somebody from the Electrical Safety Authority. So the other problem in barns is uh, misuse of ignition sources or ign- igniting equipment. Uh, smoking still creates problems, which I would have thought that was going to be gone, but it still does. Extension cords, uh, misuse of equipment, welders, that, that is, is a common thing. Uh, then the other one that we worry a lot about is the maintenance and deficiency. The other, the other uh, thing that happened a lot, two years ago, we had a lot of straw chopper fires. And they were happening all over the place and now we have none. And, and so just to try and get a handle on what's creating the problems is really difficult because we don't know what is going to cause the fires next year. And that's, that's the challenge for us.
0: This episode is brought to you by ARCON Forensic Engineers. Since 1965, Archon has been Canada's premier provider of forensic engineering services to the insurance industry. With expertise in mechanical failures, collision reconstructions, fires and explosions, structural damage assessments, biomechanical analysis of injuries and electrical malfunctions, ARCON's engineers provide comprehensive support for property and casualty claims. For more information, please visit www.archonforensics.com or to speak with an expert, please call 1-888-272-6671. Now let's get back to the show.
1: So how many people in here think you could put a sprinkler system in a barn? Could, could, could. Okay, so about, about, about a third of you. I'm going to be a little generous on... You're going to pull it back. Okay, so now we're down to about a quarter of you because it's a small group and the math just worked a little differently. It's actually really easy. Now, it's easy because we know of technology, but people don't always know that the technology is there. So what I did was I went through and, and I talked to a bunch of farmers and, and I made a list. And uh, so it's called sprinkler systems in barns, are you nuts? Uh, so we came up with, there's at least 18 reasons why you can't do it. They're separated into the are you nuts category and it will never work category. Uh, there's a lack of water. The cost is too much. There's compartmentalizations in the barns. So if you've got a small room, how are you gonna put a sprinkler in there? Uh, toxic, substances, toxic substances in the suppressant. So if, there's a, if you're using a dry chemical, that's actually considered toxic. Uh, The temperature in the barns is too cold. Washing down the buildings causes them to corrode the the equipment. There's open concept barns now that are wide open, so again, the compartmentalization goes the opposite way for you. The uh, ceiling height is too high, so you can't use a sprinkler. Generally, in a sprinkler, you can't do it in a a high building, and and my argument to that is, you ever seen an aircraft hangar? They're pretty big buildings. Um, And then they say maintenance. Under it will never work, attic spaces. How would you put a sprinkler system in an attic? Underfloor pits. How are you going to deal with all of the the stuff that comes out of there? If if you're using water, you're going to flood the pit and create a problem. There's corrosive gases in the barns. You can't make me do it, which I love. Um, (laughs) That's why I buy insurance. Again, that's a great one. There's a huge fire load in a barn. Dust and debris will affect the system and the corrosive, and it can't be done in existing barns, and the fire department's too slow. I can't speak to that. So they may be too slow, but they're, they're, there's a way. Uh, has anyone in here ever seen a generator on a farm? Everybody knows, right, they have generators, right? So, so here, and, and you're going to have to squint, but I'll walk this around. So this little device right here is a fire suppressant system that works on a dry pipe system. Has its own motor, has its own tanks, and, It does not put any water at all onto the fire. What it puts onto the fire is soap and a little tiny bit of water. And it mixes it as soon as there's a head that says, or as soon as there's a sensor that goes off and says, I need to have that that come on. So it's an entirely dry pipe system. So when that thing starts up, the motor starts, off goes the suppressant. And it floods that building. But it doesn't create any water damage. What it does is it mixes the soap and water into a foam, and it fills the entire building with foam, soap and water. Soap has great huge air pockets with very little surface space, so it actually puts the fire out. The other benefit is the cows come out spick and span. (laughs) Um, As well, since it is just soap, you could fill the building to the roof and not impact the animals at all. Because there's enough airspace space in, in the soap particles to allow them to breathe. It would be a little bit annoying, but it would still work. That unit right there is the same price as a generator to put in. The exact same price. We can't find anybody that's willing to dry it. I don't want to be involved. You know, it's too much pain. This system was created by people who put fire suppression systems in boats. Anybody here been on a cruise? Have you ever thought about where they're gonna get the water to fight that fire on a cruise? They don't suck it out of the ocean because guess what? That thing would tip over and you'd all be dead. What they use is suppression systems like this. They had to come up with a way to do fire suppression systems in these larger boats that made it so people weren't gonna die because of a fire on a boat and then putting water on it. So this system is relatively inexpensive, and nobody will do it. So we're gonna have to find somebody at some point and just say, we'll pay for it, and we're gonna try it. Not that we wanna set their barn on fire, but we'd have to try it to, to see how it worked. The, the, other, the other challenge, uh, just I'll just clearly state this right now, the other challenge with that system is it does have to be in a warm part of a barn. So it would have to be in a separate building on the barn, but that's all that would require heat. And it doesn't require much heat, it just has to be above freezing temperature. So a small little block heater or a small little heater in there could, could actually solve that. You're saying the total installation cost includes the piping, labor, and everything the same as putting it in a? As a good size generator. Yep. But people will do the generator because they can see that I've got to be able to milk, I've got to be able to feed my animals. But they won't spend the money to do that and put it in the barns. Hundred grand. Yep. If you go to the really big ones, if you had one of the really big structures, you might get upwards of four hundred thousand, because you're you're talking a system that has to be able to pump more volume. But even on that, you're less than if if you're if it's four hundred thousand and you're on a four million dollar barn, you're you know we can all do the math on that. It's it's not a huge investment. The other thing we can do on barns, uh, we can have fire separation. Uh, Fire separation is fairly easy. Lots of people don't like to do it. Uh, That big potato barn fire that we dealt with, he likes to keep his buildings 20 feet apart because that's the minimum that he can do it in his municipality. He doesn't like to spend money on fuel, so he keeps his buildings close. Fire stopping, fire doors, fire walls, they're all really easy to put into barns. With the larger barns now, we're starting to get more uh, chief building code officials who are saying, you need to put in fire doors. they're doing it. One of the larger dairy barns in Ontario, we spoke to them uh, during construction, we talked about putting in fire doors on on what at the time was a 12 million dollar build it was only going to cost him 20,000 dollars wouldn't do it. He just said you can't make me do it, I'm not doing it. And he says you know the cows will be bothered by it and it's going to get hit by skid steers, but he just wouldn't do it. Fire roads around buildings. We see a lot of fires where the fires start that the fire services personnel cannot get to the fire to put it out. So if it's on the backside of a building and there's no laneway there, they're running high vol hose out. And any firefighters in here? A high vol hose is heavy. And they're not... It's two to three people to pull out one length. And so to run a high volume hose out to a fire takes about 25 to 30 minutes to get it just even in place. So the less we can do with them running that high-volume hose, the better it's going to be. Uh, There was a barn fire in Jarvis, Ontario this year. Uh, When the fire trucks went in, they got stuck in the laneway, uh, which created a problem because the barn was quite a ways back off the road. And so then they had to bring in high hose really quickly to start pulling equipment out. So having a good laneway is really a good way to to prevent fires. Another thing that's really quite interesting right now is Canadian Food Inspection Agency. They are, they have the most power of any governmental body I have ever seen. The new potato barn that went up, he specifically built it to standards that were in excess of the Canadian Food Inspection Agency because he didn't want to have to deal with them saying, okay, you're not cleaning these walls properly, you're not doing this, you're not doing this. He now has one that is above the code. It's above those regulations. They have rules now for contact with food products. If you, as a claims adjuster, were to go into a barn full of potatoes and a CFIA inspector was there and they saw you walk out, they have the power to tell that farmer All of the potatoes in that barn are now culls because they can't verify that you didn't go in there with some anthrax or something else and sprinkle it on a couple of potatoes. So if you ever see a CFIA truck, don't go in, wait till they go. There's rules for the storage of chemicals, there's rules for dust control, there's rules for what goes in here, there's rules for what's there. It is amazing how they now are changing the structures of barns because of what they are doing. Last thing I'm going to talk about is the Internet of Things. Uh, There's companies right now that are creating uh, engineered solutions for buildings where they control or they actually can see every component in that barn. There's a very large turkey processor in the Grand Bend area that has a system in place that was about... It's about $200,000 to put in. So it's not expensive. They can tell when every door is open. They can tell the amperage of a motor. They can tell the revolutions on the motor. They can tell when a light switch goes off. They can tell what the temperature on their kill floor is. They can, uh, we're not eating turkey, right? So we're good. Um, they can tell you the humidity on there. And they did it because the CFIA rules. Having the door to your cooler open for more than five minutes, it breaches a CFI rule for food safety. So they're now able to say, here's what happened. Here's what happened on that day. And it comes down to product recall as well, because they now have records of everything. They can tell they've got it set up on their tractors in their fields. They can tell the RPM on the tractor. They can tell if a motor takes too long to start. If the starter on a motor clicks over three times, they immediately go in and replace the motor. They don't want to fire the things that they're able to do now with the Internet of Technology is it's, it's astounding. So with the the IoT, IOT it's capable, capable of preventing losses. It can identify local issues uh, right down to each receptacle. It can actually tell you if a receptacle is running hot. It can, it can be used in uh, existing structures, but it's always easier in new. So I believe in the next 10 to 15 years we're going to see a revolution in smart homes in commercial buildings and in farm buildings where everything is done as a sensor. You can buy them right now for $2,000. It'll monitor everything in your house. It'll tell you if kids leave the lights on upstairs too long or your kids are taking too long in the shower. It includes cameras, door monitors, heat monitors, smoke and carbon monoxide monitors. The only problem is it may be a really easy entry point for cyber attacks. So that really large potato barn or a really large poultry barn, we actually talked to them about what are they doing to prevent somebody coming in and creating a problem where they could go in and and there is a potential they could work backwards and they could shut stuff off. So if they wanted to affect somebody's supply whether they're doing it just out of vandalism or whatever, they could go in and shut down for, or shut down uh, cold rooms and, and everything. so And the other problem that I see is uh, DIY. Uh, soon we'll have the instead of HGTV, it'll be uh, internet TV where they're telling you how to do all these sensors and, and everybody will be trying all this goofy things in their houses and building things that they really just don't know what they're doing so. Now, I, have, uh, I, I need uh, some help from you. You guys are going to be my guinea pigs for a few minutes. So when you go to a claim, is your reporting system automated? How do you do your initial claim? How many in here have an actual claim system that can take down the information, help them when they're in the field to take down information for a claim? One. So did you guys create that?
0: Yes you created it's a it. brand new system that we paperless okay. everything's online
1: it's every file I have everything's on there so it's it, in the web right it's in the offline. web but it, but it, so it's an offline system and it goes up to yep. the web yep yeah, okay perfect so we know that at least one company can do it every company. every company can do it it's it's how much money you have to spend so you're it's an internal system okay great that helps me out a lot um, So thinking about your system right now, if you're not using an electronic system, could it be automated? Terry's is. Could everything else be automated? Because you're sitting right on the edge of a disruptor here. It it could really make a big change. So then, Terry, can can that be made simpler? Well, we have our version
0: of it. It's called Claim Center. It's Guidewire. Yeah. have our version of Your it. Your version, yeah. So we took it as raw and then had, I think, 100 employees work on it over a two-year period. Yep. And we refined it down to be for us. OK, good. So it's an individualized? It is. OK. It's just a main platform that right. we really retrofitted it for us. OK. The company is that?
1: Aviva. Aviva. But
0: co-op and Intact has it as right. well. Right. I know
1: Intact has one. Yeah. yeah. So. Thinking about when you go out and do your initial claims visit, what one thing, well, one thing could, could, could you guys have done for you that would make your life simpler? Is something like that something to think about? We have, we have a system. Uh, for anyone who works in the mutual system, we have, we have something that we're actually going to try. We're gonna try. And, uh, so, but I've got I've to ask before I can do things. They don't just let me go and run hog wild, so unfortunately, life would be so much easier if I could do that. What does it do? You're, you're going to have all your information in one spot. You're going to have all your pictures in one spot. For you guys, for example, you would have your, your loss control information in one spot, in the same spot as your claims. And so you would be able to go and say, wait a sec. You know, there was a recommendation here and, and, uh, and do that. So. Okay, that that gives me plenty of information and is going to make my life a little bit easier. Uh, So I'm just going to get you all to sign a waiver that you all agreed that I'm brilliant and uh, I can move forward with this project. And so we're good. All right. That is the end of what I wanted to talk about. Uh, Is there any questions? Uh, So the question was, do we have any input with the the building codes? no, the answer is no. We we can just like everyone in here. What we do is we go on and we watch what they're changing in the building code before they do it. They always uh, put out put it out to the to the people in the province to have comments and feedback. Sometimes I think they do that just to say, okay, <laughs> we fooled them, or they think they're going to actually have input. But uh, we're we're looking at trying to get more people on our loss control team into committees to have more impact. Uh, has, us going out to see you know, seven or 800 barns in a year is not gonna be the same as us having the impact on changing the future. So that's, that's something we are working on. But everybody in here has the opportunity to comment on the building code changes, on the electrical code changes, and I know in some cases they do listen. It it typically doesn't affect the the construction. What has a greater effect is weather. Uh, Because these these materials are available right now. It's like you can go buy hurricane straps anywhere. Uh, You can buy earthquake straps quite easily too. It could add to the construction in that there's a lot more bracing. Uh, But the, the quicker people get acclimatized to the changes of doing resilient design, it will make it easier in the long run to to come up with a better standard for this. Uh, California has already switched over to resilient design. They're the leader in all this stuff. They immediately jump on everything. And uh, so we're going to kind of watch what they do and see what happens. Any other questions? Yep. So when you're talking about building back better and some of
0: the retrofits that you're trying to suggest to these farmers, so there's the obvious benefit to the insurer, the reassurer. right. Are you able to also? Tell them, well, the generator is going to cost you 100000 and give them an idea of premium reductions that would show some return on the investment, or is it not attractive enough to the
1: firm? The, the, way, the way I've always looked at that is we shouldn't be penalizing the people who do things correctly, we should be penalizing the rest of us. Uh, so your rates shouldn't go down you're doing it right, it should go up because you're not doing it right. Yeah. That, that's my belief. And, uh, but there, there, when I was talking about the resilient communities, yeah. they're actually, they have a commitment from several of the large insurance companies that if a resilient community was built, there would be a reduction in their insurance costs. So it is something that can be looked at. And I think, I think we do have to look at that in the future to say, if somebody's going to do all this stuff, then what can we do to make their life better? But insurance is really based on that that cost overall, and... and, uh, Right, yeah. Yeah. So our actuary, Paul, would would kill me if he heard me even talk about that right now, because he doesn't like when I do that, so, but... I guess sometimes it'd be the difference between being insured and not. It could, could, right, it could come down to that. Uh, And it could come down to, if there's enough problems over time, then the government could also mandate resilient construction and that's something you really got to watch because then you're going to be paying just, nobody would be able to afford a house at that point. So, Well, thanks for listening to me, and uh, you missed a great presentation, so uh, it's just too bad.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of WP Radio. It was a pleasure recording it, so we hope you enjoyed the episode. Please check in next month for another installment of the podcast. And until then, stay up to date with all the info at OIAA.com.
2: Are you an insurance adjuster, actively adjusting claims? If so, we want you. The OIAA is a professional organization currently consisting of 1,800 claims professionals with its main focus on education, networking, and knowledge we promote and maintain a high standard of ethics among insurance claims professionals. We work together with government departments and officials, governing bodies, members of other organizations, insurance companies, associations and fraternities, as well as the general public in matters connected with the business of insurance and insurance claims. We recognize the value of networking for education, advocacy, advancing professional standards and offering mutual support. We provide networking, professional development, inside industry news, and support to insurance adjusters across Ontario. By joining our network of active and associate members, you receive a direct introduction to other members, our Without Prejudice magazine delivered to your door, discounts for all social and professional development events, knowledge from mixing with seasoned, experienced adjusters and with new up-and-coming professionals, and satisfaction knowing that you are an active participant in shaping claims adjustment and risk management services in Ontario. Most compelling of all is the price. Just for $50 a year plus HST, the value far outweighs the fee. Can you afford not to join us? Please visit our website to become a member and to review our calendar of events at www.oiaa.com.